Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we've been exploring issues of environment and climate change. This week we're discussing the impact of COVID-19 on the environment and with me to discuss that is Professor Rachel Mills, Dean of the Faculty of Environmental and Life Sciences at the University of Southampton. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. It's a delight to be here. COVID-19 has obviously led to a very sudden global lockdown. What do we know about the effects of that lockdown on greenhouse gas emissions? Well, that's quite difficult to predict, actually. And there's been a lot of effort by a lot of very clever people to try and do that, because we obviously don't really know what happens in the next few weeks, months as we bounce back. And certainly from what we've seen in China is that while the emissions were dramatically reduced during the full lockdown period, they've been very effective at bringing things back on on board very quickly. But the the best estimates are that there's something like a 5 to 8% reduction through 2020 in our emissions. And what do we know about air quality in some of those places where emissions have been cut? So air quality is one of the quickest things to respond. And I think we've all seen those images of the, the, you know, the Himalaya taken from 200 kilometres away. We've seen, I live in Shirley in Southampton, I can see stars from my back garden. And I've never been able to do that. I've been able to see the Elon Musk satellites being launched from my back garden. And it's just stunning. So the air quality... And those really fine particulates that really cause that haze has disappeared pretty much immediately. And that's been the most most impressive thing. But we can also look at the satellite data that can pick up the things like the nitrous oxides. And again, the, the air quality across China, across Europe is dramatically improved. And again, we can look at the sensors in Southampton. And, and even in Southampton, where we've got you know, cruise liners and ships parked up outside in the Solent, the air quality is remarkably improved from the sensors we look at from the city centre. So that has been one of the real blessings of being in this lockdown period. And have we noticed any other changes, for example, to ecology and wildlife as there's been a, a reduction in human activity? Again, because I live near the common in Southampton, we can see bird life is just loving this lockdown period. The birds are breeding really successfully. They're, we can hear their bird song much more clearly because the you know, ambient noise is reduced. I mean, whether they're actually making more noise, I suspect they're not. It's just that the ambient noise is lower and we can hear them really clearly. And so I think we can see the ecology responding very quickly i've even seen more rats you know the rats are much more confident that's probably something we don't actually appreciate (laughs) so every part of the ecosystem is is responding that's much harder to quantify but in fact my colleagues in environmental science in southampton have have actually put right outside this window they can probably even hear this conversation they've put something called an audio moth which is a sort of low energy recording device it is just recording the ambient noise in southampton and the idea is they're, they're recording it during lockdown and then they'll record it over the next months as we wind back up our our sort of normal lives over the next months to years and they'll compare the racket we cause under normal conditions with this rather quieter lockdown ambient noise and and be able to correlate that with the noises you might even be able to hear this the sparrows outside and making the most extraordinary din and the other noises such as bats etc so I think we've got projects going on here, probably around the UK and globally, looking at the impact on the ecosystems, which will give us data later, but we'll have to wait for that. And from all the things you said, it sounds like the environment can recover quite quickly when there's a a sudden lockdown like the one that we're experiencing at the moment. 
Well, I think different bits of the environment respond in different ways. Air quality actually seems to respond very quickly. And certainly ambient noise is virtually, you turn it off and it's virtually immediate. So that's very quick. Whereas things like the CO2 levels, while we talk about that really large reduction in CO2 emissions, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent actually that turns into a very small change. Again, the estimates coming out it might be half a PPM difference by the end of the year. That's tiny. Mm. And so actually one of the things we've learned is different parts of the environment um, need the changes needed need to be much bigger to see the effects we need to have on say CO2 levels in the atmosphere. So we can measure that. And we need to probably carry on this level of reduction year after year after year to meet our Paris Paris targets of or our, or our net zero by 2050. And that may be difficult given that we're trying to re-engage the economy again. Are there any other areas of data that are coming in from different parts of the environment that we haven't mentioned? I don't know, from the oceans or from glaciers or other areas? Well, I think one of the most striking things, I don't know whether you've noticed, but the weather forecasting really has gone to pot recently. So the, you know, the Met Office weather forecast that I have on my phone is pretty unreliable, you know, certainly more than a day out. And it turns out that actually a lot of that fine tuning of the Met Office forecast comes from the transatlantic air, 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 aircraft that aren't flying at the moment. So the sensors on those aircraft as they take off and land and come in from the west are used to give us much more accurate weather forecasts. That's not happening. Our weather forecasting ability is back to where it was maybe five, six, seven years ago. And it's just little things like that make you realize how dependent we are on the status quo. And when that's shunted, we have to think of clever new ways of doing it. But I think if we go on to your ocean question, Again, we don't know, but we can suspect that, you know, the shipping industry is all parked up. I mentioned that we can see them off Southampton. So then, then they're making noise in port because they've got their engines going. But actually, across the shipping routes, they must be much quieter. That must have an impact on mammals that live in the ocean, other organisms that live in the benthos. We're measuring that at the moment. So we, we would predict that the, those, those animals that rely on sand for navigation would be much improved with less shipping. Again, we need to wait and see. Now, obviously, we want to try and emerge from a lockdown in a way that's less environmentally damaging. And, and some businesses can't take place at all, but other activities can uh, and actually organizations are achieving quite a lot with staff working from home and that brings environmental benefits and obviously you work at the university of southampton which is a large employer how has the university adjusted its ways of working during the lockdown well i guess first of all we had to do a massive transition very very quickly as we all did you know and and the, that period during march that mid-march period was extraordinary as we as we got you know the eight thousand employees the twenty four thousand students off the campus and working in a different way. Now, of course, not everybody's off the campus. That's the first thing to say. We've got, we've got staff, we've got a big medical school, we've got big um, health science school, we've got staff at the front line, we've got staff in the hospital, we've got our students who graduated early out there working, whether, whether they're nurses or doctors, working in the hospital environment. So we've got all of that activity going on. And then we've got our research COVID-related research going on. So there is still quite a lot of activity going on in certain areas of our campus. But most of us are working from home. And I've been sat here in my front room now for is it eight weeks. And um, we've found different ways of doing that. And I, I'm sure you, you've done this as well, Gavin, is that, is that we've got 
endless meetings via whatever mechanism, but lots of looking at screens, lots of sitting around and lots of finding ways to stretch while you're actually in meetings so your back doesn't seize up. So I think it's that balance of um, learning very quickly how to work in a different environment, keeping those relationships that are really important between students and students and staff and research groups and postgraduates in the university environment, keeping them going by digital means. And then, of course, getting all our teaching online. So term started after that Easter break and we've been doing all of our teaching remotely. That's a massive transition for academics. We've talked about it a lot for decades. We've dabbled in sort of um, online courses and MOOCs and some sort of digital master's delivery, but everything is being delivered remotely. And that transition, you know, the staff have been fantastic. They've really stepped up. The students are learning how to do it. I've got an 18 year old who's a first year at Bristol University at home trying to engage from here. It's, it's interesting. It's an experiment. Um, but, but I think we're learning lots from it. To what extent can the university use the knowledge it's gained during this lockdown period where it's had to work in this way to reduce its environmental footprint once the lockdown restrictions are eased? So I'm the sustainability champion for the university. And one of the things I've been really racking my brains with is how can we use this as an opportunity? I mean, I know it's been a massive um, shock to society. Lots of people are losing their jobs. The economy is plummeting. But there is an opportunity here to actually grab some of the, those, those things we've learned about online learning. Let's, let's use more blended learning in our standard delivery. I've had staff meetings um, across the faculty where I've had much more participation than I ever had before. I've had people engaging in those meetings and asking questions, people that would never speak up in, in a normal meeting. So some of the level of engagement via these online means are, are different and they're actually more inclusive. So we need to use the best bits of that. Obviously, our business travel has stopped completely so while international flights are not a large amount of the uk emissions for the university sector it is a significant part of our emissions because we spend a lot of time traveling we recruit a lot of international students and we go to a lot of conferences and, and i think we have to challenge ourselves has this taught us new ways of doing this um, are there ways that we could actually attend conferences um, digitally. Yes, there are. Um, I've been dipping in and out of various conferences over the last few weeks. And personally, I've found it really enjoyable. I don't have jet lag. I can just dip in and out of the things that interest me. But I've been having a conversation on Twitter this morning with people where a lot of maybe the younger people, a lot of the early career researchers are making a really good point is that sort of um, networking opportunity associated with conference attendance is crucial at early stages in your career and we need to find a way of perhaps blending that with a more reduced amount of international travel in the future and I think that conversation will run and run but it is an opportunity to rethink that. I think simple things like I've been doing online yoga why do we ever go to a sort of stinky gym to do a yoga class? My front room is actually a much nicer place to do it. And, and so lots of those sort of social interactions could be done in different ways in the future. And I'm thinking, a, you know, digital gym membership might well be the future. And we can rethink that. I haven't quite got to cutting my own hair yet. And I'm, perhaps I'm not going to do that. But um, I think each of these elements can change the way we work as a society. And we need to capture the good ones that allow us to, you know, deliver on our commitment for a sustainable future. So how do we piece our way towards a new normal 
for the workplace sort of post-COVID, not necessarily the university workplace, but the workplace in general. And it's likely that research at universities like Southampton can help us do some of those things. But how do we get from the kind of the, the good intentions that you've just expressed to some kind of new place? I think there is a will for a start. I mean, looking at the surveys that are coming back from people um, and in terms of their ambitions to come back to the workplace, I think the majority of people in the UK recognise this is an opportunity. They're enjoying the better quality of life. They're enjoying the slower pace, perhaps taking out that daily commute and giving them a bit more time in their lives. They're enjoying the improvements, the environment. So I think that's the first thing is we need to get the buy-in. Even the politicians are talking about a green recovery plan. So again, the sort of messages coming from the top are also identifying that this is our opportunity to incentivize the right sort of behaviors during the, any sort of recovery plan for society, that if you're going to get an investment, you need to at least show how you're going to use that investment to get us towards our 2050 commitments for the environment. So I think a mixture of top-down government through to bottom up listening to the people and we'll meet somewhere in the middle and then organizations like universities who with their civic responsibility in a city like Southampton need to lead the way we need to show that um, we can find clever ways of getting people back into the workplace in a safe way over the next years year at least until we have a vaccine until we have a vaccine um, scaled up to the level where the whole population is safe and it looks like pandemics like this may not stop. So we need to be pandemic sure into the future. So I think the university has a really important role there. You asked about the research we're doing. And I think what struck me from all of this is that um, it's got to be that we've got to have a much closer eye on that transdisciplinary nature of coll collectively working across disciplines. So we look at the COVID response and we've got specialists that work on sort of viruses and the epidemiologists, but actually you've got to work with a social scientist. You've got to understand about the sort of social engagement and the, and the way people will respond about whether they'll obey curfews and they'll, whether they'll obey social distancing. The same thing's true for the environmental sciences. If we've got to understand not only about the engineering solutions, the clever ways of getting carbon out of the atmosphere, the clever ways of predicting air quality dispersion through a city. We've also got to work with the social scientists to understand the human response and, and our collective ability to actually work together to achieve these goals. And you've begun to answer this question, but early on you mentioned net zero, and obviously the UK has a target for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. To what extent does the, this experience of lockdown and, and, and the environmental effects that it's had help politicians and the public understand and make some of the decisions and trade-offs that we need to make in order to get to net zero? Well, I think the first thing we've learned is that global response is possible. If things are bad enough, we can do it. We can, who would have thought, you know, two months ago that we'd be sitting here having this conversation in a country that is under lockdown? in a world that is under massive change so i think that's the first takeaway message is that if we get it right global collective response is possible which is what we need for the climate emergency that's the first thing and then i think i've made the point already is that actually we've got to we think we've made massive changes this year we've got to do this year on year on year on year to achieve those targets and what's been very frustrating about the whole discussion about net zero is that 
lots of um, declaring emergencies, lots of commitments to 2030 net zero, very few plans. I found it very, very difficult to actually find a plan where any organization, any government, any, any part of society has actually said, this is how we're going to get there without actually just saying, I'm just going to offset everything else. And now we've got to shift that dialogue and, and we've got to actually start having some concrete plans. So I think we know we can do it. We know we can, if we get the messaging right and the governance right and society all lined up, then we can actually address this. Let's get a decent plan in place. And to what extent are there major areas of environmental research that are needed to help government make the right decisions to, to achieve this target? A lot of the technology is there. It's just not cheap enough and it's not scaled up enough. So we've got sort of demonstrator setups for most things we need. We need better battery storage, we need better ways of generating renewable energy, we need better ways of transmitting that energy without losing it on during transit, we need better waste and disposal and recycling and a circular economy. We, we know all these things. So in some ways, in fact my engineering and science colleagues will hate me for saying this, we know we know how to do this, but we just need to be able to scale it up and we need to be able to embed it in all sectors of society and we need to actually collectively work internationally to essentially roll that out everywhere and so it's no point the UK solving its problems locally we have to have a it's a global problem which needs a global response and so I think actually again to make a point, point I've already made it, it's it's taking those engineering and science solutions and translating them into policy, translating them into sort of societal responses. But, I mean, we can learn a lot from the medics. We can learn a lot from the pandemic response. It's all about translation. We can solve things locally at, at small scale, always because we're clever people. It's the translation to society. So a lot of that is then logistics and it's about rolling out on a large scale and, and significant investments and, and long-term planning. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, one stepping stone on the way to net zero and 2050 is, is the COP26, the next global climate summit, which was due to be in November. It's now been delayed, of course, uh, because of coronavirus, like everything else, but it's being held in the UK next summer. What do you think the effect will be that coronavirus will have on the way that the UK, but other countries as well, approach the, the COP26 discussions? The biggest imperative is that each country that is doing various sort of investment packages for their post-COVID recovery of their economy need to ensure that these are all tested against their ambition for net zero. So let's take the UK. So if we're going to invest in airlines, for example, that are asking for a bailout, we need to ensure that those airlines are held to account that whatever investment they get, they have to demonstrate that they've also got a plan for net zero. Very difficult for airlines, I know. But we've got to challenge each of those investment packages against the direction of travel that will allow us collectively to do that. And, and, and we have a chance to do that. We have to invest to recover post-COVID. Um, we've seen GDP just go through the floor. We're going to have to put something back into the economy. Let's make sure it's done in a way that when we look at this in 10 years' time, we say that was the chance and that was the point at which we started to really deliver on our net zero infrastructure investment because we use that money wisely. So if I put you on the spot and say you're now the environmental minister and you get to choose some of these things, what would you be doing in terms of these investments over the next year or so, so that we can all look back proudly in a few years time? 
I think travel and transport are absolutely key. I think obviously in the short term, everyone's been told to get back to work and not use public transport. And we've seen the images coming out of London. Longer term than that, we, we have a chance here to really rethink the way we move around the country. We can really rethink the way we move around the world. So I think with the rights of investment from everything from active transport locally, um, using cycle, cycle route investments in the city through to public transport hubs and spokes around the southern region through to wise investment in our railway infrastructure through to replacement of internal local regional flights with a, a decent infrastructure that allows us to move in a much more environmentally friendly way I, i'm really passionate about our transport plans and then of course the other really big thing is is our aging infrastructure i sit here in my victorian house with its rattly windows We've got a massive piece of work to do in the UK around our, our buildings and our buildings where they're heated and all of the emissions that we use to heat them leak out into the environment. Investment back into the construction industry, make sure that everything that we build or refurbish is done to a really high um, environmental and sustainable level could be absolutely transformational. Next time I see the environment minister, I'll put those points to them and uh, <laughs> hopefully, so uh, hopefully we'll get there. Rachel Mills, thank you very much. It was a delight. Thank you. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. All episodes of the podcast and all details about the work of the Foundation are available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk.